welcome to the Popcorn Talk Network. For the online broadcast network that features movie discussion, news, and interviews, press one. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. In a world where action movies are constantly exploding at the box office, our heroes take on the monumental task of dissecting and analyzing all aspects of action movies to truly understand what it takes to make a great action film. Ben Bateman, Andrew Guy, in a Popcorn Talk Network exclusive, this is Action Movie Anatomy. What's up, everybody? How you doing? I'm Ben Bateman. You're joining us for Action Movie Anatomy on Popcorn Talk, the online network devoted to movies and all things movies. I am joined by Andrew Guy. Hello. And our special guest today, Miss Roxy Stryer. Hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Absolutely. So we uh, we are an action movie show. This is the second episode. We're super excited to be back. And uh, we tackle action movies, what we consider to be classics that fit into one specific category defined by five rules. Number one, the movie was released after 1981. Rule number two, the movie is driven by a political, military, or police figure. Rule number three, the hero always plays by their own rules. Rule number four, there is at least one explosion. And lastly, rule number five, the hero and the villain are always the smartest people in the room. Now, you can obviously sort of take some of these rules open to interpretation. If the villain is an alien that doesn't speak, you have to bend the rules a little bit. But today's movie, Edge of Tomorrow, which was eventually renamed Live, Die, Repeat, which is maybe the title you know it as, is uh, definitely a movie that fits into the category. So the first thing we're going to do for you guys is we're going to roll the trailer. Uh, because we feel the trailer is very important. Uh, we want you guys to watch it, and uh, we will then react with our first thoughts. Well, the trailer is just excellent. I'm gonna it's a fantastic trailer. Yes, I love it so much. Yeah. First, it's gonna sound it's ridiculous. ridiculous. But the longer we talk, <laughs> we have to find the Let's let Tom do the Tommy. Oh, I'm sorry. It was actually pretty good, Tom. I, okay. <laughs> I might have done once or twice. I don't know. He's been practicing every day. <laughs> uh, oh, I can feel it building up. It's very intense. I'm gonna oh, be honest, I've probably watched this trailer like a hundred times. Like, it's oh, yeah. one of my all time turns. It's a good one. I have a couple problems with it, though. I watched it one five of. times yesterday. <laughs> we, we did a lot of work prepping for the movie. This is it's kind of creepy sounding. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, it is. Invasion will fail. So, well, I, I, we'll, talk, we'll talk about all the elements of the trailer. Settle down, boys, settle down. <laughs> <laughs> He runs better than everyone. He screams minutes. better than everyone. Oh, he's the best runner ever. It sounds ever. like a horror movie. It does. <laughs> How did you do that? How did you do that? Come on! This is all just audio, by the way. This is because this happens to you. You wake up and you knew what was just going to happen. Right. Right. I knew it. So I do think that this is where the trailer gets a little worse. Yeah, I mean, the falls off. You got a lot of the great lines in the first half of it. Yeah. Because it's an extended trailer. Yeah. I do remember watching this trailer in theaters, though, and, like, my mind was a little bit blown. I think it was a little bit like, wow, like, they're giving Tom Cruise the, the rope to do $175 million action movie right now? I was like, I didn't think he was that bankable anymore. Are you kidding? I that he was bankable? Oh, I guess he hadn't done He had a long stretch there. He wasn't making a lot of money on his movies. You think about the movies that came out before this, like, I hadn't been excited about a Tom Cruise movie in a yeah, long exactly. time. Exactly. Jack Reacher was the last thing to come out for. I wasn't even excited about this movie before it came out. Really? Yeah, I wasn't. It definitely was. But I, I think he's kind of grandfathered himself in, though. Like, he, he'll always be bankable. I think he'll be 90 and he'll be bankable. He's like Aerosmith being able to sell a concert. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. 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 
or Bon Jovi. That's probably a better comparison. Strangely enough, probably one of my all-time favorites. No way. <laughs> what are you not, are telling, you not me? telling me? Um, a lot. A lot, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. I think she's talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> I think she is too. So uh, we can definitely all just like hold our love for Emily Blunt. Well, we'll get there because uh, I'm pretty sure that's what we're all feeling oh, right yeah. now. Oh, yeah. So initial thoughts, guys. I, I, the reason we wanted to show the trailer here first is because we really feel that this movie in particular, it's such a good trailer and it tells so much about the movie. You got to think, had you seen this film without the trailer first, what would that be like versus uh, kind of knowing the premise? Because it's we'll get into sort of what the movie's all about but what do you guys think first about the trailer and then about the movie well it's interesting like I have this friend that refuses to watch movie trailers and I think that's absurd that's one of my favorite things about movies is the trailers because there's some that are so good out there you know Godzilla Dark Knight Edge of Tomorrow that just like you're like I need Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline to see this movie right in this case since it was originally called Edge of Tomorrow not Live Die Repeat I think if you didn't ever see the trailer and you went right into watching it you'd be like holy crap did Emily Blunt just die right did Tom Cruise just die we're 10 minutes in yeah you know so I think in this case it would add to the movie to not have seen the trailer I thought that the trailer was kick butt, but my my problem is after seeing the movie, it didn't for me explain why this was a different movie for Tom Cruise. It looked like uh, War of the Worlds or, or any of those Tom Cruise movies that have happened in the past, and I was like, oh, okay, I know exactly what I'm getting into, and I didn't know exactly what I was getting into, which was a more vulnerable, softer side of Tom Cruise that I really enjoyed seeing on screen. So I did like the trailer. It was edited well. It, it really got my attention, but did I think it was a unique film at the time? Definitely not. So this trailer actually was nominated at the 15th annual Golden Globe, the Golden Trailer Awards for Best Action and Best Summer Blockbuster Trailer, uh, which I didn't, to be honest, it's not an award ceremony I knew existed. I had no idea. Uh, Congratulations to them. But it's amazing because, I mean, Drew and I talk about this frequently, the best movie trailers ever. Like, we we watched the Congo trailer twice yesterday because it's, like, one of the best trailers of all time. Yeah, yeah. It would take two sides. Just kidding. Um, Anyway, that movie is amazing. The trailer's amazing. The movie's not. But the point is, I didn't know this was a thing that existed, and had I known, I would have definitely looked into it further and like petitioned for this movie to win. It eventually lost to The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and the Godzilla trailers. Okay, amazing trailers. Amazing really? trailers. See, yeah. Catching Fire. Like, yeah, the Catching so Fire weird. one, I was a little... Godzilla not, looks awesome. Godzilla blew my mind. All right. Brian, Brian, the movie didn't. Brian Cranston? Like, what's what's the thing where he, the, the door's closing? And he's like, you have to let me in there! Well, based like, off that trailer, you thought he was in a huge chunk of the movie, and he really wasn't. So trailers can be very misleading, and yeah. I, I didn't feel like this trailer was misleading, but I didn't think it did for the movie uh, the justice that it needed to do to make people who are sick of Tom Cruise movies go. This is true. That's so, a good point. Yeah, alright, so the first thing I would think of, and this is, we'll just get into first thoughts. I think that if you were to watch this movie without knowing what was going on, uh, the first thing you notice is that there is there is zero pretense. In a way that a lot of the movies that, like, the 80s and 90s were all about... If this movie had been made in, like, say, 1994, it would have been, like, Tom gets up and has a cup of coffee and pets his dog on the head. And then he, like, goes to his secretary and he's like, I'm headed off to Russia now, or wherever he, he lands. He lands in Trafalgar Square, so they filmed it. But uh, 
it's in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's like, I'm off to see the general. And general, I'm this guy. And he'd say something really charming. And he wouldn't be sniveling at all like he is. And then you would get into the premise of the movie. Absolutely. Because you would need that little bit of a cushion. That's how they did movies back then. That's like how 90s movies started. None of that. I just think that's a testament to people's attention spans these days. Definitely. It's like there's, you can't have time for all this narrative, this exposition before getting into it. It's like cut to, cut to, cut to, action. You know what I mean? Like... There is no, there's none of that. Right. Again, in the 90s, that's all movies were, the first half an hour. When we were younger, I used to go to the movies, and if I was five minutes late, ten minutes late, didn't really matter. Now, if I am not there to watch every single trailer, and for the exact start of the movie, I'm not going to that movie. Completely agree. So, this movie gets right into it, and I think what's amazing is, like you said, if you didn't know, I can't really even imagine, actually, the experience of watching of watching Tom Cruise die or Emily Blunt die so quickly. Their face get melted. Like, that yeah. was not just a death. That was a gruesome death. Um, but I will say, in watching this several times and prepping for this episode, I love this movie. I remember I saw it twice in theaters, uh, so I've probably seen it a half dozen times now. It's just as good the sixth time as it was the first. And that's a testament to the editing and the filmmaking. It's it's just as funny. The pacing is just as good. Uh, I, I'm totally sold on it. So... Yeah, I absolutely agree, and I think that that's a crazy concept because this is a movie that, in the movie, repeats itself. So to actually repeat the movie over and over again, to be able to watch it half a dozen times and not get sick of it when it's repeating itself 28 or 29 times throughout the movie, that's crazy. Great editing, great acting, great writing. I don't know how they did that. I would never be able to replicate that. It was incredible. I think it just speaks to the fact that everybody loves Starship Troopers and everybody loves Groundhog Day. And that's exactly what they described the movie as on set, is those two movies into one. Right. That's the elevator pitch. Yeah. Hey, hey, Warner Brothers, I want to make this movie. It's Groundhog Day meets Starship Troopers. In. Here's $175 million. Yeah, plus Tom Cruise. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're good. We're sold. Thumbs up. So I want to to get into really quickly uh, the... The, the place that Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise were in in their careers prior to this. Because this, uh, despite the fact that we'll get into this a little later, the, the budget versus what it actually made at the box office was not that impressive. Critically, it was extremely well-reviewed. This was Emily Blunt's first action movie, her first major, major, major action movie. She was obviously in right. Looper. But, and then for Tom Cruise, he hadn't had a hit since Rogue Nation. So, or since uh, War of the Worlds. Ghost Protocol, I was going to say. Ghost Protocol was very well-reviewed and made a lot of money. But aside from that, he had been had sort of a soft stretch as far as a leading man in big action movies. Right. Like Oblivion didn't do too much. So let's look at the star profiles. Tom Cruise's last sort of three big recent movies were Oblivion in 2013, Jack Reacher in 2012, and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol in 2011. We'll start there. Right. Uh, for me, this was the best performance he had of any of those. So I think that it... Big time. Absolutely. Because it was that difference that I'm talking about. Does he always bring his A game? Yes. He does a great job. I've never seen him in something and been like, wow, that movie sucked because of Tom. Uh, so I, I think that these movies, I've seen all three of them. I, I think that some are better than others. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that this was his best. Yeah, I mean, he's acting again. You know, like there's, there's the fun Tom Cruise, there's the action Tom Cruise, and then there's like those sweet moments that is some of the best scenes of the movie where he's just being legitimate and direct right, and right, honest right. and genuine. Um, I'm actually slightly embarrassed to admit I never saw Oblivion, and I think it's like one of the only Tom Cruise movies in his whole filmography that I have not seen. I'm gonna jump mm. on the train with you there because Tom yeah, Cruise really? is one of my all-time favorite actors, and I I missed Oblivion. I I even saw Night and Day, and I didn't see Oblivion. I mean, that's what do you mean you even saw Night and Day? That's a phenomenal movie. <laughs> I, I have not seen Night and Day. So. It has one phenomenal cruise scene for anybody that has. There's the scene where the airplane is going down, and like uh, Cameron Diaz has gone to the bathroom, and she's coming out. She doesn't know that Tom's just like kicked everyone's ass, and he's sitting there. And He's sitting there as the plane is going down with no pilot, holding like two drinks. And he's like, 
little problem I got to tell you about. <laughs> it's like you're like you're like Tom Cruise. Yeah, perfect. But I, I like that, that we've seen Night and Day and we haven't seen Oblivion, and hers is the exact opposite. Yeah, well, great. Yeah. I, I think that just shows how awesome I am, and my test. No, it, it really speaks to you guys and your dedication to Tom Cruise. I guess I should have seen Oblivion. I, I always intended to. I just never have. I just feel like usually at the start of a film, Tom Cruise is so full of himself, the mm. characters he's playing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I can do this no matter what it is. Totally. In this movie, we start and he is shaken has no idea what to do and is blackmailing people and it, it's awful he and, runs into the chair on right. the way out of the office yeah, yeah. he's so like he's, he's great so, at it he's fumbling around yeah. he's a weasel he's scared he's, right. he's conniving so we get to see that character arc which is amazing and I don't feel like it's always there in his roles because that's not the point of a lot of his movies but this one it was so yeah so Jack Reacher Oblivion Mission Impossible so Jack Reacher was uh, I think a movie with some polarizing opinions. It's a movie that has some really great moments, but overall is pretty comical, and uh, it's kind of in the vein of old-school action movies, which is very difficult to do in 2012, which is, I think, why Edge is so good, is because it takes the old cliches and the old genre, and it kind of turns it on its head in a lot of ways. Right. Um, it had a 62 on Rotten Tomatoes, so... Reacher, you're talking about? Yeah. That? Yeah, yeah Reacher's... It's fine. It's actually... Reacher's actually uh, written and directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who mm-hmm. wrote this movie, as well as Usual Suspects, which is his most famous writer credit. But I wasn't that impressed by Reacher. I mean, I definitely... I think we'll probably do it on the show at some point, would be my guess. Yeah, why not? Because it is a, a legitimate attempt with an A-list star at doing an old-school action movie. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Ghost Protocol is sort of part of the whole franchise thing that we're dealing with nowadays, where it's very difficult for movies to be sold anymore based on star power as opposed to franchise power. And that's right. why that movie is successful. I mean, it's obvious. If Oblivion's not going to make any money and Ghost Protocol's to make all the money... Right. You yeah, know. I mean, other than... Oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, other than War of the Worlds, um, the Mission Impossible movies are the ones that have always made him the most money, and it's because of this franchise tag. And even War of the Worlds, that's 06. I mean, we're talking about almost... That's almost 10 years ago now. That yeah. era is kind of in the past. I loved it's War like of the, the Worlds, though. I really yeah. did. Except for Tim Robbins. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> what I was going to say about the Mission Impossible 3 is the fact that it uh, it got a 90-something on Rotten Tomatoes, a 93, but from the audience, it got 76. You're talking about 4, right? Uh, sorry, yeah, Mission Impossible 4. I, it just, I think that people didn't love it that much, but they really wanted to. Mm. I think that of the most recent ones he's been in, it was pretty decent. And again, it, I didn't, it didn't fall flat because of him. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I just thought that this was a better movie overall. So, and I think a lot of audience members agreed. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody, anybody who's seen, and I, I was pretty aware of Oblivion. In fact, I think I saw some of it on cable at one point, but I haven't actually sat the whole, through the whole movie. I'm very aware of the reactions of these movies. Edge of Tomorrow is like here. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe uh, Ghost Protocols like here, and those other two are like down here. Do you think part of that is because going into it, people didn't have very high expectations, and so they go to see Edge of Tomorrow, and they're like, "Holy crap, where did this just come from?" Uh, yes and no. I definitely think some of it. It's it was an expensive movie. It has the exosuits. It's got that big budget sci fi feel to it. So I think there's a visual appeal for some people. Like when it went to video, a direct TV kind of movie. I think people probably ordered it and watched it. Mm. But I think it's a fantastic movie overall, at least the first two thirds anyway. And I think. Uh, it stands out so much in its genre that I think people were really willing to accept it because because it wasn't just like a it wasn't just like a really great representation of a style we had already seen. Like if Jack Reacher had just been gangbusters good, it would have been like, well, this is as good as the movies that it's imitating from twenty years ago. 
this is a movie that's never been done before. That's why I think people liked Edge. Yeah, and I actually wasn't that excited to see it, even though I did love the trailer. I still like I've been have been on and off the Tom Cruise train for the last decade or so. But you're being slowly sold as we I do this am, episode. I you're am. back on. I'm back on because I love this movie. I'm really excited for the next Mission Impossible, and also the the new project that he's working on. It seems like he could be taking that like serious dark role. And I'm that, excited to talk about that. One. Let's let's get to that in a second. But let's hit Emily Blunt star profile really quickly. So Emily Blunt, her three sort of I don't know what to call them hits, but maybe highest profile films that would sort of relate to this genre before this were Looper in 2012 definitely the closest thing she's ever done to this right. uh, The Adjustment Bureau in 2011 and The Wolfman in 2010 so and Looper's the one that stands out definitely Looper was actually very good it's a great movie and critically critically well received it's another sci-fi movie she plays a very strong female character in the movie again um, I have a feeling she was probably on Lyman's radar for casting due to Looper yeah, I, I think it was mostly Tom Cruise that got her cast, was, uh, that yeah. pulled her in, but I think that that was probably mostly due to Looper. Yeah. Uh, because Adjustment Bureau was good, but I don't think you could have pulled her from that and put her in this and thought that it would have worked, and Wolfman was just, I don't have much to say. Adjustment Bureau was pretty far under the radar. I definitely, I remember reading the reviews, and Grantland did a funny article I remember a little while back about it. Uh, poking, we'll say poking some fun at Adjustment Bureau. And, I can uh, see that. Yeah, that movie was not... I don't think it was taken particularly seriously. Better than Wolfman. Yeah, I didn't see Wolfman. It was atrocious. And you were so excited for it, too. Anthony Hopkins, Benicio Toro, like, make me a good movie. Um, With the Adjustment Bureau, I had heard... I had no interest in seeing it all, but I'd actually heard pretty positive things from most of my friends or people that had seen the movie. So I'm I'm interested to see it, but I definitely don't think that that's where they wanted to get Emily Blunt from, was from that specific movie. Sure. So... Obviously, Wolfman Adjustment Bureau were not big money makers. Looper, I think, did quite a bit better at the box office than they were expecting, uh, just because it was critically well reviewed and and you had like Willis in an interesting role. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's very popular. Um, the interesting thing when you look at these two actors and you look at the movies they've just been in, Blunt's really on the rise. She's she's really on the rise in her career right now, and Cruz is transitioning into the next phase. I would say this is him being convincing as an action star. You know, an action star who sort of looks like he's ambiguously in his late 30s or early 40s in this movie. I think that's kind of the role they're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. Maybe 41. But Cruz himself, I think he's around 50. or just over now. I think he's over, yeah. They yeah. actually rewrit part of the script to match his age once he was cast. Because originally it was Brad Pitt. Yeah. And then they wanted to get Ryan Gosling. Right. And then once Tom Cruise signed on, they are like, okay, we need to make a few adjustments in the script. Which is... And him being older is such a better... It's so much better, really. Right, and I thought he played pretty young too, and it was didn't seem like there was a huge gap between them. When in actuality, there's a very large gap between them. So it's interesting because she's transitioning sort of into a role in her career where she can be almost like a Julia Roberts mid-career sort of where she she could be sort of on the Oscar train in the next few years. Whereas Cruz is almost transitioning, which you're expecting into like the early stages of early 80s Paul Newman or like late late 70s Paul Newman that's like sort of what you could expect from him if he can if he can do it properly it'll be that kind of thing well maybe he'll get on the Oscar train too then yeah exactly the most interesting part about her to me was the fact that previous to this movie she turned down two Marvel roles two huge action star roles um, one of them as Black Widow mm-hmm. and the other one as uh, Peggy uh, she's in Peggy Storm yeah, Pe- exactly and she turned both of them down and she was very uh, modest about it because she didn't want to come out and say that because it's kind of a low blow to the actors that actually get the parts. Kate Mara's doing pretty well and she's playing Sue Storm but uh, no for uh, it's uh, 
uh, Haley Atwell for Peggy Carter, not for. Oh, I Storm. thought you were talking no. about for Sue Storm. No, Sorry. no, no, for Peggy Carter, and um, and the other one would be Scarlett Johansson. Right. Uh, so you know, those would be two huge action star roles that she turned down for one reason or another, scheduling or whatnot. But then for her to take this role, I, I think it must mean she really believed in the script or, or something because she clearly wanted to do an action movie, just not exactly in that. Hundred percent. So, so let's get into the, like sort of her involvement in the production development on the movie. So it's directed by Doug Lyman, uh, written by Christopher McQuarrie. Uh, though the original, the, it's taken from a manga that was then written by a guy uh, named Aunt, uh, Harper, Dante Harper, Dante Harper, who the script was sold for a million dollars, three million dollars, no one million dollars in twenty ten, and then they sold it again later for at, three mil. Yes, for three mil. So he's and he's like a developer guy. He's a writer, but he doesn't have any major action movie credits on his roster. Right. So this was a big moment, uh, and this the whole adaptation. Obviously, like we said, Brad Pitt was cast in twenty eleven before Cruz was brought on for the role. But it's interesting to look at Lyman. And, and how Lyman ended up the guy that's directing a $175 million action movie. That's the biggest budget movies that he had made were Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Jumper prior to this. Right. And uh, while Jumper Jumper was panned, Mr. and Mrs. Smith was pretty well reviewed. Yeah, absolutely. $175 million is an enormous amount that's of money. A lot. That's but, like directing know, Dark Knight's Rises or something like that. Right. Yeah. But, you know, they knew him from Swingers. Right. And from Go, which are both great movies. And they're kind of in that same, well, Go is kind of in the same pacing of this movie. It's kind of funny, but it's still kind of intense and serious. Um, same with Mr. Smith. He, he kind of banks on this, like, comedic action superstar movies. Right. People were worried about him going into this because he is a fan of the shaky cam and that right. is his style, but then when when this came out, nobody was worried about him directing anymore. I think he nailed it. He was the perfect guy for this. Yeah, so this is sort of funny. He there's a there's a phrase thrown around called Limania that people use with him because he's notoriously difficult to work with. Um, oh, I like that. Yeah. So Born Identity went, I think, about fifteen million dollars over budget. Mr. and Mrs. Smith went about twenty four million dollars over budget. There's stories about Lyman and just sort of like there's there's like ghost stories about Doug Lyman. Things like things like him keeping his crew late while working on uh, I believe Born Identity to light a forest in Europe so he could play paintball. That's a true story. Apparently, wow. he was so far over budget for Mister Mister Mrs Smith. Apparently, he uh, <laughs> he blew up his mother's garage with a hand grenade in lieu of a scene. This huh. is another story I heard. You think he asked mom for permission? Now I'm not going on record saying that any of this is necessarily true. Right. Maybe some of these things are are. No, I would have to believe it because I've watched a lot of interviews with him, and honestly, he he's in his own little world. Sometimes people will ask him questions; he doesn't care whatever you ask. He's just going to answer whatever he wanted to talk about. Like he he does not care. So I, I could see him being in his own world. And he's on record as saying, "You can't threaten me by taking away my career." I made a movie for two hundred thousand dollars, Swingers, which was very successful right. and I very much enjoyed. I'll go back to doing that if I have to. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't care. There's a great story from the set of this movie where Emily Blunt is tense and it's early on in production. And apparently she she looks at him and she says, relax, I've never made a movie like this before. And he yells back at her, neither have I. And I love that. Everybody steals confidence. But here's my, here's my favorite part of the story. You have terrified Emily Blunt. You have Doug Lyman, who's like, everybody's like, you've never, what? And then Cruz jumps in there and he goes, <laughs> he goes, wait, wait, stop. I love that you just said that. I want to see you work through this problem. This is interesting to me. And I'm just like... I think everything about this is just amazing. Tom Cruise is amazing. Doug Lyman, Emily Blunt. Like it just blows my mind. Tom Cruise is just the man in this movie. <laughs> That's did, what that means. Did yeah. you know that he he threw a hundred thousand dollar after party for the for the movie that he didn't even attend? 
because he was still working on the end of the film. He was still shooting. He's like, ah, here's a hundred grand. Go have fun. I'm going to finish the movie. I got to say, I don't think I would ever do that. I would just say, hold off. Hold off, guys. I got to push it back. I really want to come to my own after party. $100,000 party? I'm there. Cruz has been said in his interviews that he likes to be shooting one movie and then working on prep or production for another at the same time. He doesn't take breaks. He went directly from Oblivion straight into filming this. Less than a week. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. That's just how he is. But he still manages to be the most positive person on set all of the time. Emily was talking about how during one of the uh, dropship scenes when they're standing and they're in those huge, huge uniforms and she was sweating and it was tight. She was miserable. She turns to him and she was like, this sucks. And he won't say it back. He's like... It's okay. Yeah. She turns, she's like, no, Tom, it sucks. Like, she tries to break him, but you can't. You can't break him. Can't break Cruz. Poor <laughs> Emily, man. Wild stallion. When she first tried on those suits, I know that we talked yeah. about this. The suits weigh, like, anywhere from 85 to 130 pounds. And she's a small it's a girl. That's her. That's pretty, yeah, it's, it's her. Like putting she's her wearing, on her own back. Yes. So, like, one of the first days she tries it on, she just broke down and started crying. She's like, I have to shoot in this for the next five months. Well, here's a story for you. So during filming, the original writer of the manga, uh, whose name is Hiroshi Sa- uh, Sakurazaka. I hope that was I said good. That right. No, that you was really killed good. that. that you was, did. Uh, Better than I could have gone. He wrote, "All you need is kill." He uh, went to visit the set to try on one of these exosuits. And for anybody who doesn't know, the exosuits were real. They're a hundred percent real. No CGI um, involved. Yeah, no CGI. They and they were big metal, sometimes with foam and sometimes with other armaments to make them over a hundred pounds. He shows up to set. And he wants to try one of these things on. So they feature him in a, in a scene as an extra. And he tries one of these suits. Amazing. And he's, he's in the background. After 10 minutes of filming, he was like, I'm exhausted. I have to take this thing off. That's what somebody who's not prepared to wear these things is actually... And these crews and Blunt were doing like sliding jump kicks and spin moves and running. All the, the crew's running scenes. That's all real. Yeah. And Blunt had a kid. Like, yeah. oh my, the way that she gets in shape is like no other. Which is why I have so much respect for her in this movie. I just think she's incredible, and she looked incredible in the way that she was able to, for five months, wear a hundred-pound suit. I would never, I could never do that. That's in crazy town. Do we all want to reference the yoga move? Because I think we all want to reference the That's yoga all move. I've been thinking about the <laughs> whole time. I didn't even move. hear anything you said after you talked about her. Being they showed in the trailer, like they showed in the trailer at least once. They showed in the movie like, like two or three times. times. Yeah, it's like the it's like the most memorable. Like she's just, I mean, amazing. So she was out to dinner with Lyman, and she was there, and he was like, "What should we do? How do we introduce you?" And one of her co stars was like hey do that yoga move that you do <laughs> and she was like let me show you like literally out to dinner got down did it he was like that's it that's what we're doing what like, what a yogi kind of thing to do amazing believable so so moving on really quickly from McQuarrie uh, just to wrap the writing so this is a guy who obviously rose to prominence writing Usual Suspects he's now sort of uh, he's in with Cruz because he wrote and directed Jack Reacher uh, he also wrote and and he wrote and is directing the newest Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. MI5. That's an enormous, enormous project for him to be directing. So Cruz must be a huge fan at this point. You think that Cruz is a fan, or you think he's a fan of Cruz, or both? I think both, right? I think in the Tom Cruise world at this point, if you're like heavily involved, if you're writing and directing a movie he's starring in, I think Cruz has got to be a pretty big fan. Because Cruz is the major producer on all those movies now. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, at the end of the day, he could even if he wasn't the major producer, he's Tom Cruise. If he doesn't want to work with someone, he probably won't be a part of the movie. Yeah, but I understand why he's a fan, though, because I'm a fan, too. Yeah. I think Ed- he's doing great. Edge is, yeah, awesome. I mean, great, uh, great. Re- can, yeah. can I jump in and talk about the writing real quick? Yeah, go ahead. So we were talking about Hiroshi a little bit ago, and we talked about how McCory, um was the real writer of the movie. So in the original manga, um, at the end of the movie, Tom Cruise, essentially, Cage, has to kill Emily Blunt. They have to have a battle to the death, right. or else the days will keep resetting over and over and over. 
I think that that's a better ending to the movie. Like, if Tom Cruise kills Emily Blunt to save the world from going over and over and over, and then he becomes this decorated war hero. Because he kind of missed that at the end of the movie. He doesn't even know who she is anymore. Yeah. He doesn't, he's not recognized for anything that he's done. It, it kind of leaves me wanting. Well, I haven't read it, but I believe in it. They both are... She's still going through the same thing, and they're both going through this and resetting yeah. it every single day. So I, I I, think that the whole movie would have had to have been different for that to be the ending. Although I, I do agree with you that the ending did leave a little something to be desired. I don't know how he would have gotten to that place, because in this version, why would he have had to kill her? Uh, I think you... <laughs> We're talking about a sci-fi movie that involves time travel and things that are completely unexplainable, really. Right. So I think you could have written any number of reasons that he would have had to kill her. That's true. What you would have had is a similar scene to the ending of one of my favorite films, Warrior, Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton, the fighting movie. Do you like the, Tom Hardy? I'm a fan. Where the two <laughs> brothers have to fight, and Joel Edgerton, who's like sort of the underdog brother, he has to beat Tom Hardy in the ring to win to like win the money and ultimately exercise, excise, uh, expel yeah. the demons. Mm. It would have been the same thing. It would have been like it would have been the same moment of like maybe uh, maybe Emily's like you have to kill me, Tom. He's like I won't do it or something like that. And then she's like you have to do it, you know. And he he stabs her and she's dying and he's holding her in his arms because that's in the book. In the yeah. he's yeah. holding her in his arms and she dies. Yeah. It's really sad. It would have been a great ending. You guys are kind of morbid. So well, they went into production on the movie. Uh, with the ending, they hadn't re- finished the script. They started production without an ending. And and Lyman had five different endings written. Oh, my gosh. He kept hiring writers to rewrite the ending because he was unhappy. He just didn't like the third act. And I'm going to be honest. I don't like the third act. That's that's what I want to tackle that now while we're talking about the writing and the production. I hate the ending of this movie. You this, hate. It's not just a dislike. You really hate. It's because, to me, up until the point that basically the action starts about 25 minutes before the end of the movie, to me, this movie is like upwards of a nine. And in my book, 10's unattainable, so 9's about as good as it gets. Like, this is like a 9.4 to me, to the point that that starts. And it literally drops the movie to, like, below an 8. Maybe even, like, a hot... Yeah, like a, like a 7, 6, 7, 7 for me by the time it's done. Hmm. How'd you feel about the end of the movie? Uh, well, we just rewatched it, obviously, recently. And there's this stretch from about an hour 30 to an hour 45-ish, where it does that to me, too. Like, I think that at the very end, it kind of pulls it back together. But there's that, like, 10, 15-minute stretch where I just, I'm not into it. I don't believe that all these people that don't know who Tom Cruise is, just met him that day, is going to follow the full metal bitch, as, as she's called in the mm-hmm. movie, right? to battle just based off of, like, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. And, and I, I know this thing's about you, and you're you're imitating your friend that died, and you are this and that. It, it just seems it's not real. And then after, like, three or four minutes after that, uh, everyone's like on board. He's like, well, what do I do if I see an alpha? You take one for the team. You know, and then the, the guy's g- like, okay, sweet, I'll do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Totally. And then the guy that's the most skeptical is like, no, you've got to do it. You've got to, you've got to finish this. I'm going to stay. And right. he, he ended up sacrificing himself and dying for it. I it was kind of unnecessary that he did that. He didn't really need right. to sacrifice yeah. himself there. To take out like six mimics with like a bomb. Right. right. There's like a million of these things. I know, I know. But I will say that I, I try to bring this to the real world and think about myself. And if somebody came up to me and was like, here's what I know about you. Here's what I know you've done. Here's what I know your name is. This is what's going to happen tomorrow. Are you with me? I think I'd say yes. Like, all right. You know everything. I don't know how you could possibly know that, so I'm in. Okay, so agreed. And, and they do a good job of explaining it, not just him, but then they're like, you're going to fight for the most decorated soldier you guys know of, the person who, who's, right, she comes out. whose success okay. is the reason that you're supposed to trust you can win. So I get that. Here are my two major complaints with the end of the movie. And this is what I thought about. So we talk about all the cliches this movie takes and uses to its advantage. All the, all the expectations you have, even things at the beginning, like when you're introduced to the, that J-Squad 
that's a very like cliche sort of army stereotype, right? So you're like, okay, I'm in. This is sort of funny. And then as soon as the dying starts happening over and over, you think this is great. What happens as soon as you get to the action sequences? It reverts to stupid action movie, exactly what you think it's going to be. The cliches that they're so clever with early, it's a group of a ragtag bunch full of camaraderie, sacrificing themselves and blowing up robots. Like, it's literally, they land, everyone's dead except for Tom and Emily. They get up and they're walking into the loop together. And I looked over at Andrew, I was like, you could have literally just not had any of those characters in that last scene. It could have just been Tom and Emily. Right, if you like, would just skip the entire J-Squad sequence. I love J-Squad, though. I thought that they brought a lot of light to this and, and some humor to a very heavy topic. It would have been great if it was heavier. Great. Yeah, you just you just want a lot of death. I get that. You, my biggest issue with the ending was the fact, and this could be very sci-fi. I don't know, time travel paradoxy, but the fact that they start the day over again after they do what they do, and then they start the day over again. But if they were going to start the day over again, then that wouldn't have happened, and they would have had to do the same thing. But it would have happened because they already killed them. So it's like it's very complicated. That's the other major complaint, is, right. and that's the biggest one that people complain about. Is so he dies. And, uh, sorry, spoiler, guys. Uh, well, he dies a hundred <laughs> times, but he dies, and then he gets covered in some, like, omega gook blood. Yeah. And he, when he wakes back up in the helicopter, before any of this has happened, but it's already happened, sort of, it doesn't make any sense. It resets to a totally random point that doesn't reflect any of the logic they've sort of beaten into our heads. Right. Um, and that's, I think, probably why Lyman didn't like the ending, probably because he couldn't decide how, like... And yeah, whatever. I mean, it's it's still awesome. I love the movie. I'll watch it again. It's just I just think it drops a little at the end for me from being like perfect to just like very good. Right. I don't know if it's because I'm vain, but I hate when the hero doesn't get credit for what he does. It drives me crazy. Oh, you wanted everybody to bow down. Oh yeah, it's mm. Tom Cruise, and he just saved the world. <laughs> he needs some. He needs okay, some respect. With a little help. Give it to my girl. It's not just Tom Cruise. Uh, Emily did she, a good she job. She is the best part I, of the movie. Yes, she is she absolutely the best part of the movie. Incredible. So I want to move a little further into production just before you kind of move on to the uh, to the box office and the critical. But uh, the movie took 10 months to film between October 2012 and August 2013. Uh, it was produced by Lyman with his producing partner, David Bardas, who they work closely together in a company called Hypnotic Entertainment. They've done several films together. Uh, the producers on the movie, there's a few, including Lyman and Bardis. The biggest, though, is an industry mega producer named Bruce Berman. Now, guys, audience, if you haven't looked up Bruce Berman, just go ahead and IMDb him and see what he's the EP on. Just, just because, a bunch of little films, you know, some little indies. A, a couple, <laughs> just, just four that stuck out to us out of the 80-some-odd that are listed are American Sniper, Mystic River, Ocean's Eleven, The Matrix, and Training Day, as well as Edge of Tomorrow, and about, I don't know... 70, 60 other movies that are phenomenal. Now, that could be underselling it even. Yeah, right. like, there was a minute where I was like, okay, you know, maybe I just don't do the whole, like, EP research as much as I should, so maybe there's a ton of these guys that are just money guys that invest in movies. But at the end of the day, you still have to know what you're investing in. Mm -hmm. And when you invest in 80-plus movies in your career and, like, 79 of them are mega hits, like, classic mega hits... I don't know what this guy's doing right, but he he is the CEO of Village Roadshow Pictures. Somebody's given him a lot of good information, or he's just a genius, because... I think that it, he really looked into it. Yes, it's Tom Cruise. He's a huge star. But also, this script was in the 2010 blacklist scripts of m things that needed to be right, made. Right, so right. it's like, I, I don't think he kind of flips a coin. He's like, should this be a project I take on? They're all hits for a reason. He clearly is doing his research. Yeah, big time. 
Big time. And I, I think, you know, it seems like Cruz says this in his interviews, but I think a lot of people have a lot of faith in Lyman, even though this whole Lymania and difficult to work with thing, which maybe is more of a myth. I don't know. I, I watched a lot of interviews and, and read a lot of articles. A lot of directors are crazy. He just seems like he's a guy that's very, very passionate about what he wants to do. And he has the way that he wants to make the movie, and he doesn't want to do it the studio's way. Um, and the reason that he was hired to do this movie, the reason that I, I think the producers were like, we we're going to do this, is because he's great at taking a concept that already exists and making it in a way that no one else has ever done it. That's what he wants to do. He says in his interviews, I don't want to do the same movie over again that I've done. If I'm repeating myself, I'll scrap it. Right. And I totally respect that about him, but I also think that you need to respect your crew and the people that work for you. Agreed. You know, he, he, he had a scene that took a few months to shoot. It was supposed to take two weeks. Yeah. And during that, he had two crews working day and night, 20 hours a day, nonstop, seven days a week. Big time. I get it. That happens in movies all the time, but if he was just a little more organized, I think people might like working with him. It could be true, but as an audience member, I have to say I appreciate him being a perfectionist because we don't know what the result would have been if he hadn't pushed it to be a few months and he had been like, eh, my crews worked too long. That was good enough. Fair. And you have, yeah, you hear about a lot of these difficult directors. His next film, actually, which I'm very excited about, is called Mena. And it's going to be, it's also starring Tom Cruise, so clearly, they, you know, they must have enjoyed working together. BFFs. But, uh, yeah, it's a film about a pilot who lands work for the CIA and works as a drug runner in the Deep South during the 80s, and Cruise headlines as the pilot. So there's four other actors listed. Uh, one of them is a guy who was just in Ex Machina, mm-hmm. and he's in the Star Wars 7. Like I still can't pronounce that. Is that how you say it? Ex Machina? Yeah, Machina. Yeah. Oh. Uh, there's a, it's a guy whose name I should know. He's in the Harry Potter movies. He, he's a name. It's like He's the, the kid from Ex Machina. But When's it coming out? Do we know? 2017. 2017. There, it's Brian, Gr- Brian, uh, Brian Grazer is producing. They're going into production on it now, but... That looks like the the way it's set up with Lyman directing, crew starring, and a younger cast and a dramatic subject like that. This could be the big sort of dark action, like return to the board on any style of movie that we're waiting for. Mm-hmm. Instead of Jumper and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I think he's he's gotten the studio's trust, and I think this really might be the one. I'm I'm very excited. I think Oscars maybe. Now yeah, our I mean, expectations are really high though. Yeah. Really high. He's gonna have to do a lot to live up to it. I think Lyman and Cruz in a dramatic movie like this, like a period piece. I think it's going to be amazing. I just want to see Cruz do drama again. Oh, it's going to be you great. Know, he's phenomenal when he's in those serious roles. Magnolia is one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah, that is an incredible role. He's also really good in the funny roles, though, too. Yes. Tropic Thunder. The one thing I want to point out about Lyman before we move on, uh, he's a producer on with David Bardas and also directed the first two episodes of The O.C. I know. Season I know. one of The O.C. I Brian got and Marissa and Seth. It's like one of my favorite shows of all time. I can't believe it. Clearly, I was a fan early on because... I'm a diehard fan. I'm a diehard, so that just melted my heart. It's amazing. Never watched it, never will. <laughs> so we'll good. see what we can do about that. It's so good. <laughs> all right, so let's get on to some uh, box office and critical. Uh, basically, this movie came out. It was expected to make a ton of money. It didn't. It, it ended up doing okay relative to what it could have done. The full budget was $175 million, and worldwide it made a little less than double that. Right. Which, for a Tom Cruise movie that cost this much money, is, is considered a failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when you consider what the other movies that year made and what it lost to, its opening weekend, it was third behind Fault in Our Stars yeah. and Maleficent. All right. Here's the deal with that. Fault in Our Stars and Maleficent were going to be two of the biggest movies regardless. So I don't think that this was smart planning on their part. Yes, I guess that they would be different audiences somewhat, but 
I, I think it was just too many people going to the movies that weekend to see. It was Maleficent's second weekend. I was going to say, it was Maleficent's oh, second weekend. That's weekend. tough. That's really tough. I don't know. And Fault in Our Stars has got a lot of like teen girls going. Right, and that right. They're this. the juxtaposing audience. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's hard to say. I think that a huge part of the reason this movie didn't do so well, and I, this could just be ignorance, but it's about the title and how they changed it halfway through. And people don't even know what this movie's called. And it was really confusing. And Live, Die, Repeat could have been a better name from the start, but they didn't want to do that. I, I really think people got confused. Well, they so, actually renamed it because yeah. of how poorly it did in the box office right. when it was going to DVD. They're like, we need to do something that's going to get more hits on this on the internet. Whatever it is, sounds more appealing. Um, and this was his first movie that even made, and it, it barely made, $100 million domestically since War of the Worlds. Yeah, so if you look from 2000, from 2000 to 2006, Cruz starred in seven consecutive blockbusters, and the, the standard definition of a blockbuster being $100 million domestic. Um, after 2006... He has not had an, another $100 million movie aside from A Ghost Protocol, which, as we said, the franchise kind of sells that. Mm-hmm. So that's almost a decade worth of movies. And it's not like Tom hasn't been working. He's been working the whole time. There was the fiasco, though. Yeah. And this is a big part of it, I think. And, and that's is sort of he's on the upswing now. There was the Scientology slash Katie Holmes fiasco in 06. So on the press tour for War of the Worlds, there was just he just it's not like he hadn't been a Scientologist people knew he was a Scientologist he just very openly talked about it and was on television promoting the movies and just was sort of willing to go in detail about it right. there was that video that went online that people got all crazy about the him just explaining you know the whole the car thing right mm-hmm. I understand. I understand people not liking him as a person and then not wanting to see his movies and, and having that translate. To me, he's such a strong, talented actor that, unfortunately, I don't even see Tom Cruise when I'm looking at it like that. So I don't particularly agree or believe in what he believes in, but I think he's really talented. Well, there was a public perception thing because there was a combination of that video, the getting together with Katie Holmes, Oprah jumping on the couch incident, mm-hmm. which people just got for whatever reason really up in arms about Tom Cruise and so this is on the press tour for War of the Worlds they just thought he was crazy right I think like Scientology was like this up and coming thing he was like the first big superstar to kind of sign on to it and advocate it you know that like well talk about it publicly well right Right. exactly Uh, obviously other people have been part of it but uh, it was just a rough little patch in his career I think and so Lions for Lambs comes out after that in 08 and obviously that's a really weird movie to come out next anyway because it's slaughtered in the box office it's like a political drama kind of with Redford and Meryl Streep but it's like really not a Tom Cruise movie in the traditional sense at which point he's then sort of started the reclamation project with Valkyrie right um which is actually a pretty good movie, I think. Yeah. Corey wrote that as well. Yeah, Corey yeah. wrote that one as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think that it's hard. It's hard when you are in this age of social media and all of these things where we can see you as a person all of the time. That didn't used to be. We didn't know that much about all these actors behind closed doors. Now we do, and it affects their careers. Big time. So this movie ended up, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it a flop. I would call it lukewarm in the end. If you double your budget and you're making upwards of $150 million profit, like, yeah, the studio's not happy. They're not like completely crushed right for as how good this movie was it should have done better should have done way better I mean it was amazing in comparison this was the 33rd highest grossing movie of 2014 worldwide 33rd Hmm. Maleficent was 4th I have a graphic I want to put up on the screen really quickly which shows the top grossing films of 2014 worldwide compared to the top grossing films of 1994 worldwide and the reason I want to do this is because in today's media market, you don't see films mostly sold by their stars unless they're part of franchises anymore. Mm-hmm. If you look at the top grossing films in 2014, you have Transformers Age of Extinction, Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies, Guardians of the Galaxy, Maleficent, Hunger Games Part 1, 
Uh, no, Mockingjay Part 1, X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America Winter Soldier, Amazing Spider-Man 2, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and Interstellar. Yeah. Of those movies, you can make an argument that eight of them are part of franchises if you consider Guardians of the Galaxy part of the Marvel franchise. Yeah, definitely. Eight of ten. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the, to, the other ones would be Interstellar was not and... Interstellar was not and Maleficent was not. Right. If you go to 1994, I won't list the full list of movies, but it includes Lion King, Dumb and Dumber, Speed, Interview with a Vampire, Cruise Movie... Only Clear and Present Danger, which was the 10th highest grossing movie in 1994, is a Jack Ryan movie, so you could sort of say it's part of a franchise. Right. Right, but not a lot of people even know about that franchise. Ultimately, it's not at all. It's, it's the, like, that's 20 years, and that's an enormous difference. Right. It's the direction that we're going in in film. I mean, it's got to be a franchise tentpole, massive thing, and, and that's just how things are working right now. For better or worse, it's kind of like Get On Board, which makes me wonder about this movie and, and if there would ever be more and a, a bigger franchise going on. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the other thing that's interesting about this is, like, Cruz, at some point in his career, would have been considered for the starring role, and let's just list these movies, the, the, the 2014 list. Transformers, the Mark Wahlberg role, Cruz would have definitely, he could play that now. Uh, he wouldn't have played in Hobbit. Guardians, he could have played Chris Pratt in his prime, for absolutely. sure. He wouldn't, have been, he wouldn't have been in the lesson. As a young kid, he would have played PETA in Hunger Games, for sure. 80s Tom Cruise, absolutely. I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. yeah, Days of Future Past, there's probably, he's not ever going to play Wolverine, so he would never take Cyclops the second. He would have definitely played Captain America as a young actor. Amazing Spider-Man 2, 80s, for sure. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is ensemble. He probably wouldn't have been in it. And Interstellar, that's like, he could play it now. So... I just don't think Tom Cruise would get any of these roles. Not because he wouldn't be offered them. I just feel like it's sort of not his brand. It's like, weird, for whatever weird reason, he doesn't mesh with where movies are right now. Huh, that's really interesting. I, I don't know if I... Well, I just never thought about it like that because I think of him as such a mega star right. that I think there are things of his choosing. But I, I think he could get any of those. I mean, okay... Or some of them, at least. No, no. Like, I don't think he would. Like, I think if they offered him Transformers, you Mark Wahlberg... You would say no. I don't think he'd do it. I think he would take Interstellar. That, that list, yeah. the only one that I would see Tom Cruise at this point in his career wanting to do would be Interstellar. Mm. What are you... Ugh. I was an Interstellar like fan. No, I didn't like it. I love, oh, it. love that movie. Mm-hmm. I just want to start, like, humming oh. the theme song. Um, all right, we, we got to move on because we, we want to get to the uh, ultimate action scene, and we also want to kind of get to our, our last little fun rapid-fire subjects, but... Cool. The ultimate action scene we've almost sort of talked about at length, and the funny thing about this movie is it doesn't have a true single scene that is the ultimate scene because it cuts so frequently. And because it's the same scene over and over right. again. <laughs> so we're going to cue it right now and, and sort of just narrate as it goes, but it's it's essentially the scene where it starts with Cruz waking up and realizing he's in a loop. So he goes and he starts explaining to his like barracks and, and whatnot and, and Bill, Bill Paxton and the other soldiers who he is and what's going on and why they have to listen to him. Right. Uh, the reason I think this, it's it's this and then the next the sec- next chunk of it, which we'll show in a second, maybe we we're kind of running low on time, so maybe we won't, but the, <laughs> the, uh, the reason that I think this represents the movie so well is because it's the, the premise that what I call movie star comedy, which is guys that are so charismatic, they're so good at what they do. It's like, Cruz can just be fully invested in the premise, but he's so good at it. He's so Tom Cruisey. Yeah, it's where he actually starts to be Tom Cruise. You know, he's not that guy anymore who's afraid to go out there. He's like, holy crap, this is what's happening to me. All right, problem-solving Tom Cruise needs to step in. I love seeing him like that. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, It's like, I was, Andrew and I were watching this, and I was like, this is cruise at his cruisiest. Yeah, he's kind of cruisiest. Yeah, it's, it's like a this great is adjective. The ultimate cruise scene. It's like you know, it's like, it's like what I'm about to say is very important. Like, yeah, I know. 
I, I really think it's wonderful, and and just the juxtaposition of this with how he started. I can't believe that he did yeah. that, and the editing in this scene was out of this world. Yeah. Oh yeah. So good. So much credit for them. Yeah. So you have this, which then goes into him dying over and over again, which is the ultimate comedy of the movie. That's what kind of just makes the movie, right? That's the plane, the truck. Yeah. Just like Emily Blunt stealing the battery from him is great. Yeah, and it's just hilarious. And I, I think if you His had face, what yeah. are you doing? If you had to boil the movie down to sort of what it's about, what makes it funny, it's this sequence. It's Cruz sort of having to just like battle with what's going on in that funny way. Yeah, and the audience asking how many times has he done this when he's finally saving Emily? Shoots up, shoots left, shoots right, whatever it is. I'm like, holy crap, how many times have we been here? Yeah, that's one thing I love about this movie is that it's just like a video game. And I know that a lot of us played video games in the 90s growing up. You save the game, you die a hundred times trying to figure out how to beat it. And then you go back there and you got, you know, I have to do this, I have to shoot here, then I have to turn left here, then. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's what I love about this movie. It's like watching a video game. Right. And, and his reactions, his reactions in the scenes when he's dying, oh, man, like, it's totally like a guy playing a video game. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It really is. He killed it. Uh, so, so yeah, I don't think we'll show the second half of this just because we are going to run out of time, but I, I, a few things I wanted to throw in about this we got scene. Time. Oh, we have... I guess we do have to. We do have time. So boss said so. Because I want to. I do actually really want to cover this scene because I think it's cool. it is the, the biggest one. So and there's some comedy in it too, which I love. Oh, hundred percent comedy. And the music it, it plays with us. It's like it goes back when he goes back. So cool. Yeah, Stephen, you can cue the second one as well. If you uh, just we'll just talk over that as well. Um, so each cast member had four handlers for their suits. Four, and they're each of the main guys. And so at the beginning of production. When they're filming this stuff and they're doing all the scenes in the exosuits and the running, which is this is the this is partial of what took the three months. Uh, it took thirty minutes at the beginning to put them in their suits. And Cruz, right. being Cruz, was like, "This is unacceptable. We're losing time on production. You guys need to be faster." So he he's like, "Go faster!" But by the end of it, they can time it and get in and out of the suits in thirty seconds. Yeah, I know. This is when you look at yourself and you say, "Wow, I've made it. I've got four people dressing me. I, this is it. This yeah. is the big time shot." Like. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, now, Andrew, you were looking up the, the, the history of, of just, like, a few things to go with this. You mentioned something to me about World War II, right? And how... Oh, it? yeah. So, um, so, I love this movie so much. It's getting me all hot and bothered. Yeah, you can tell. Uh, Perspiring. Yeah, I know. I apologize. Uh, so, yeah. So, this... The scene, the original scene of them taking over the beach was taken from an actual military... Uh, attack called Operation Downfall. Right. That was ended up getting it ended up getting nixed because they just dropped nukes on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I think that's pretty cool that this whole fight. I mean, because the writer is Japanese, they took this and they something from real life. Yeah. And 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 put it into a movie for something that none of us would have ever known about. And they're, yeah, well, they're like this operation never happened. It never really does happen in the movie. So I believe it was released on June 6th of two, uh, 2014, which is the 70th anniversary of D-Day, too. So that's really cool. As well as my birthday. Hey, hey. Happy birthday, June 6th. It's coming right up. Uh, Strange day to celebrate. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, so I think that this... God, Bill Paxton's so good. He's I, know, I, know, I, I just hear him. I'm like, everyone be quiet for a second. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do really think that this is the best scene in the movie in, in the sense that it represents the movie. So if you were talking about the ultimate action scene, if you had to boil any of these movies down to sort of the ultimate scene of the movie, it really is this scene. 
Um, I remember in theaters, this is the scene that got the biggest laughs right away. This is the scene that you could sort of take away from the movie and say, this is what this movie's about. And we all start understanding what exactly is going on, who's in the know, where the characters fall. Uh, I just think it, it does a great job keeping us entertained while keeping us informed. Yeah, 100%. So, all right, I want to get into, now we're talking about this, our favorite personal scene of the movie. And though though this is my pick for the most representative scene of the movie. It's actually not my favorite scene in the movie. Um, I will start with you guys. Me? That's a you sweating guy? Alright. My favorite scene of the movie is this sweet moment when Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt are in the shack after they've made it off the beach for the very first time. At least she thinks it's the very first time. And so do we as an audience. And he's he's, he's pouring her a coffee and uh, he's starting to put sugar in it. He's like, oh wait, no. Three. You like three. You know, and then she's like, how many times have we been here? How many times have we been here? Right. And then it just goes, I love that breaks scene. It's my just heart. so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It breaks your heart. And she goes and gets a helicopter anyway. It right. breaks my heart. It's, so it's beautiful. It's, yeah. one, it's the best scene in the movie for me. And he says, and she starts walking away, and he says to her, Rita, if you get in the helicopter, you die. This is as far as you go. As far as you ever go. Oh, it kills me. And I think about how many times he's seen her die. It uh, makes me want to cry. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, can I talk about my favorite scene? Yeah, please. Yes. My favorite scene was actually when Tom Cruise wakes up in the hospital and he just had uh, the blood transfusion. He's been given the bags and then he goes upside down. Yeah. And we see these shoes walking up. Yeah. And I'm scared crapless, but then it's her and she's like, what are you doing in there? I got out of there so fast. Let's go. And she goes to stab him. He's like, no, no. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. I'm going to die if you do that. Uh, I just thought that was really intense and I didn't know what was going to happen and I, I thought it was great. Yeah, the stakes definitely get raised and then immediately dropped when you realize that it's just a normal action movie. <laughs> um, but uh, my favorite scene is it's the same as Andrew's. I would sort of actually extend it just slightly to as soon as they get off the beach and they're and they're looking down at the minivan and just the the whole thing with the drive and then the scene in the shack yeah. that whole sequence is like about 7 minutes and that's my definitely my favorite part of the movie just because it it combines everything that's great about the movie there's a notion in this movie that I think is really interesting where you don't quite know in any given scene how many times Cruz has been there right like for instance in the ultimate scene we were just talking about where it's the it's appears to be the third time and he knows everything about the room. Mm-hmm. You know, Cage, Kimball, yes, exactly, thank you. Yeah. Right? And he's like, there's a card game under the bed, uh, he's working on, uh, he's working on flush states. That whole thing, like, you're like, how in three times would you know every detail? Like, maybe it's more than three. Maybe it's hundred. Maybe this is six. Yeah. Maybe yeah. this is nine. And sometimes you hear him just repeat one line. Sometimes you see him go back a step. Like, they do little editing tricks to make us be like, oh my god, I know my time. How many times have we been here? I have no idea. So when they're on the hill and they're looking down at the two cars, right. and he says, he says, she goes, what do you do? He's like, I don't know. We've never, I've never gotten this far. He's lying. And that. he's like, there's two options. He's like, be sure to disconnect the, the carriage. You're going to be in a hurry. And you're sort of thinking, you're like, how many times have they gone through this part? Which you then realize when he's like, this is as far as you ever get. It's, it's probably already been hundreds. And then she still forgets. Yeah. Well, and the fun, down. the fun fact about that scene is that uh, Emily Blunt's actually driving the van. Uh, and she's supposed to take a right turn. As you see in the movie, she takes a right turn. And the car kind of skids. And the trailer yeah. shakes. Uh, first time they did it, she didn't do that. She she missed her cue and she crashed straight into a tree. <laughs> and she thought it was hilarious and terrifying at the same time. But she was scared first because she's like, "Oh my god, did I just kill Tom Cruise?" She yeah. looks over and he's laughing as well, which is just because you can't break him. You yeah. can't break him. He's still <laughs> laughing. You got him in a car accident. He's still yeah. laughing. Amazing, amazing. So I, I think I would say it's like that whole thing. And then my f- we, we'll talk about favorite line. I have a feeling our favorite lines probably are 
within our scenes. I mean, what's your favorite line? No, no. I oh. like the comedy moments. I loved it. It was a line from Griff, which is totally bizarre, but he says, I've never been with two girls at the same time before, yeah. but you can bet when that day comes, I'll make <laughs> oh, it work. Yeah. I... Rolling on the floor, like almost pissed my pants. I don't know why I thought that was the funniest thing I ever He's heard. He's got the Australian accent, which just makes it great. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's excellent. I've been with two girls at the same time before, but you can be sure I'll make it work. And, like, how does that relate to him about to lose his life because he doesn't know where the safety is? Yeah. Like, what? Amazing. Uh, my favorite line is actually not from that scene. I do love that entire scene, but my favorite line is on the beach when Emily Blunt realizes, holy crap, you've been here before. You, yeah. You had the same thing I did. And she goes, Come find me when you wake up. Yeah, it's like, great. What? It's like, the trailer. Come find me when you wake up. And then, yeah. boom. I'm liking the dead. accents. You guys are good. It's, it's good. I love Emily it's Blunt. So, it's so good because... Uh, it's just so good because the movie has quotable lines. Right. right? That's the thing. It's like, the, the classic movies, the classic versions of these movies, uh, they have these great lines. And I really do think that this movie has great lines. That's a great line. I, I would actually go as far as to say, uh, the one line I already used from that scene... Which I think is great when he says, "Read if you, you know, read I love that." But actually, the trailer to this movie has lines from the movie, but they're they're said in a different manner than they say them in the actual film. And I was surprised at this the more times I watched the movie because in the movie there's a scene where he's talking to uh, the general at once they get in his office. He says, "General, I'm going to tell you a story, and at first it's going to sound ridiculous, but the longer I talk, the more rational it's going to appear." In the trailer, the trailer opens with, "I'm going to tell you a story." First, it's going to sound ridiculous. Oh, slow down. Yeah, it's just so much more the epic. Longer I talk, you know? The more rational it's going to appear. And to me... Brilliant. That's my favorite. Great performance. Thank you. You're welcome. It. I've never done that before. <laughs> uh, that's my favorite, I think, is the trailer version of that line. It's either that or also in the trailer when it's, the invasion will fail. We lose everything. I love both of those lines. They're two of my favorites. Uh, so that would be my favorite scene and line. So uh, we do a thing on this show where we rank the heroes and the villains on the all-time list. This is a difficult one because it's brand new. It's very difficult in retrospect to be able to rank. So I'll jump first on this one and just say I don't think that Cruz as Cage really ranks on the all-time hero scale. And the villain, they're robots, so it's difficult. What I will say is on the female villain, or the female hero scale... It's so recent, and it's a trend we're just starting to see more of in movies now with female heroes. Aside from, like, Linda Hamilton and Sigourney Weaver in Terminator 2 and the Aliens franchise, you don't see that many that are famous. But in terms of what I can remember seeing, she's a top ten for me. She's so good in this. Absolutely. I I completely agree. She's amazing. She's right up there with any of these action stars that, like, Zoe Saldana or Angelina Jolie or Halle Berry, any of them. I think that she crushes this role and like you said there's not that many people to compare her to from the past it's only really in the last 10 years been this kick butt woman i mean even like okay i don't really well i'll let you jump in first go ahead uh, about my ranking yeah, yeah oh yeah i put her in the top 10 and cruz's cage i i don't even top thousand He's, i don't know he, it's a funny one because and i don't want to get into this as a longer conversation when you talk about like the all-time cruise roles it is a really unique cruise role, so it's definitely worth considering. And we may sort of think about this in the future as like this great action lead because it's such a unique lead. But for right now, it doesn't rank for me. So you think that this character himself, Cage, is like a very memorable Tom Cruise character? Like when you look back at his career, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, Edge of Tomorrow, Magnolia." Yeah, yeah. You, know, you think it's one of them? Well, I've no, had the conversation guy. a couple times recently about top 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 ten cruise movies and then top ten like cruisiest cruise. And I think this is, like, a great example of, like, a very unique interpretation of Tom Cruise in a movie. In in this great way, though, because, like we said in that scene where he's like, yes, exactly. And he's basically just doing the scene from Jerry Maguire, except in this movie. Is that the cruisiest cruise, Jerry Maguire? 
No, that's close to that's it. That's pretty pretty dang close. Jerry Maguire is really cruisy yeah. cruise. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few that cruising I can think of. Bad. Yeah, he's just cruising. Yeah. Uh, for the record, guys, I have this idea. It's called cruising for a week. I'm just gonna just, for 15 seconds. I have this like I think it's hilarious the idea that like basically everything Where's Tom Cruise going? says. He's tried this before. Is the by most the way. important thing in the world, right? right? He basically is like. Roxy, if you don't do the show with me, you're gonna die. That's like essentially what Tom Cruise sounds like. Absolutely. So I, I would say this, yes. Okay. I have this premise that if you were to go around for a week and you just like just dress as myself, and every single interaction that I have with anyone, I just speak like Tom Cruise. It is great to hear you say that. Everything I'm doing, whether I'm working at a restaurant selling a burger, whether I'm uh, picking a buddy up, taking him to the airport, whether I'm being like. Andrew, we need, we have this afternoon, we have to work on our outline. You would end up on top. Well, my question is, like, uh. Don't encourage him, please. <laughs> I think if you had somebody, like, film you, go around with you as, like, a crew the whole time, and you could cut together, like, this hilarious five minute doc, I think it would go viral in a second. I think if you really did it and you, like, framed it cruising for a week, I genuinely think that I could do it. More importantly, I think your life would be in great shape. People believe you. People buy it. You talk to them like that unflinchingly. Oh, incredibly convincing. I've tried this. Oh, yeah. You end up with a model, a millionaire, big house, totally. Ben, I think you should convince people to rate and comment on iTunes with that voice. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. Steven with the segue. He's got to do it. (laughs) All right, here we go. I'm on the spot now. I'm going to get my best. Guys, I want to (laughs) talk. I'm going to tell you a story. It's about something called iTunes. We need your help. We need you to rate and comment and subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, and SoundCloud. It helps us do the show. If you stick with us and you come back every week, you subscribe to us on Twitter and on iTunes and on SoundCloud, we will get back to you every time. Every time. Or else what happens to them? <laughs> Tell them they'll die, Ben. Them. Or else you're going to die. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's that. I do, I do, uh, do want to get into one of our last couple of segments on the show, which is recasting. And normally what we do is we take an old movie from like the 80s or the 90s and we recast it with modern actors. We're going to flip this exercise on its head really quickly and we are going to recast with classic actors that would have been in films like Top Gun or The Rock, 80s and 90s actors. So I'm going to start with you, Roxy. We are going to start with the title role, mm-hmm. the Tom Cruise as Cage role. I'm going to go with Liam Neeson. Uh. I think he would have done it. Oh, I'm getting some frowns over oh, there. No, no. But, but I, Neeson back in the day. Le- Neeson back right. in the day. Like Schindler's List Neeson. Schindler's List Neeson. It's pretty good, actually. I think that he yeah, would have done like great. That. Because I would have countered him with Clint Eastwood, who I think would have been amazing. As Bill Paxton. Yeah. That's not bad, actually. 80s... Uh, I I doubt actually your Eastwood a little. I think he's maybe a little grizzled and old for no, that role. I, not back then. He would have been. He would have been sixty. He would have been great. I think he would have. You're, you're talking like perfect world Eastwood. I'm talking about perfect world. These people at their primes. Unforgiving. Some Eastwood. of them are in the 80s and 90s, kind of crossing over a little bit. It depends on what year my movie's being made. But I think they've both been knocked out of the park in their prime. Unforgiving Eastwood's pretty grizzled. All right, so who's your? He's amazing. Going? And then I have to go with Charlize Theron. I think she's the most talented person of all time, <laughs> and I think she's got sex appeal. And grit and she's she's a rock star she would be a young she would have been young yeah she would have been young <laughs> but you're young if you're in the military usually i think that it depends on who you counter her with as long as it's like a 20 year gap then she would have been okay yeah uh tom cruise yeah i kind of want to cast you as tom cruise now <laughs> so him 20 you're, years you're ago? a little too young though you'll be like <laughs> six at the time so i actually went with uh one of my favorites and i know one of yours 
Mr. Patrick Swayze. It's my all-time favorite. Absolutely. It's one of the few people that ranks above Cruise for me. He's actually. got swagger. He's got swagger. He's got he's just he's the Swayze. Everyone would have went to go see that movie because he was in it. Yeah, like like Point Break era Swayze is like amazing. Like you can't you almost can't think of a guy from right around that time that had the swagger that Point Break era Swayze had. Like mm-hmm. he was just just rock solid. Mm-hmm. As long as we're going dancing after. Yeah. All right. So Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. I actually had uh, Charlize Theron as well. Mm-hmm. I love her. She's gorgeous. She's a great actress, and I don't think she would have been too young because she is in her forties. What movie did Charlize Theron do in like the early nineties or even the mid nineties that you can think of as a reference? That's what I'm trying to remember. Well, I, it's not even that. It's just what she's done since then that I know she would have been able to tackle it exactly. Like even when she goes balls to the wall and does monster or something like that whatever role she takes on she nails so it's really interesting all right and she's athletic yeah she's a on flux right and she's gorgeous yeah she's gorgeous i've actually parked her car before i had an internship a few years ago <laughs> where uh, i was working at a sound studio recording space and uh cool. she came in and i met her and she's really friendly we talked for like a bit of a minute and then they were like hey you can, can you go park shelly's car in the lot and she gave me her keys it was a sweet lexus it was i was just gonna say what kind of car is it yeah. okay lexus. my favorite actress of all time i'm so jealous yeah she was very tall and beautiful and incredibly intimidating so about, what about you man who'd you cast well you have to be paxton first oh you want me to oh i actually went with arlie emery he's a great emery yeah he's uh you know um full metal jacket okay he's, yeah, he's yeah, the guy yeah, that's yeah. always yelling at everyone love the smell of napalm you know? in the morning yep yeah. exactly yeah. arlie emery yep okay um i went with as Tom Cruise, and this is going to be kind of a shift, but we were talking about him so much, I don't think there's anybody... Well, there are other guys, but I went with Denzel. 90s Denzel. Yeah. I think like, like Crimson Tide yeah. Denzel. I thought about it, too. Yeah, because he had the sex appeal also, mm-hmm. and he could, yeah. He, I mean, he does the whole, how many times have we been here with Deja Vu, and he's very good, even, like, even later. Um, I would go with Sandra Bullock. Yeah, Speed era Sandra Bullock. Mm-hmm. Especially because what we've seen her done since, we know she did a... She got the chops. Yeah, she yeah. totally does. Yeah, I think, I think like, a combination of She's her... A, good one. a combination of her physical appeal and her mannerisms from Speed and the Lake House would make for a perfect combo. Uh, <laughs> the Lake House, produced by Bruce Berman. Uh, and then lastly, I'm going to go with Paul Newman yeah. as, uh, yeah. as Bill Paxton. Because in Color of Money in 86... He's a, he looks a little old. They cast him to be a little old in that movie because he's supposed to be Eddie Felson. But I think if you just dressed him down a little and made him a little younger as Bill Paxton, I think he could have gotten away with it. Yeah, you you just did a really good job casting director, Ben. Thank you. That was pretty good. I like you know, I'm, I'm really surprised none of you said, said Jeff Goldblum for the role of Tom Cruise. Well, yeah, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> the fly era Jeff Goldblum is Tom Cruise. That would have been good. Or, Incredibly or, uh, striking. We should actually definitely think about the recast Jeff Goldblum exercise that we did with Cage, where we, we see if we can dig up some old audio tapes of his oh, auditions. I'm sure they're out there. Lost audition tapes. Oh, yeah. Um, all right, guys. We are almost wrapped up today. I wanted to, uh, wanted to talk lastly about what would happen, what would happen if you were to cast Nicolas Cage in the role of Tom Cruise. That's, that's something we're going to be doing weekly, a Nicolas Cage discussion. Or a Tom Cruise session, but it's a Tom Cruise because movie. Because Cruise is in the movie. Yeah. For a little background, are you guys big Cage fans? Huge. Oh, absolutely. So uh, my trifecta, uh, my, my trifecta all time is uh, Nick Cage, Tom Cruise, and Patrick Swayze, mm-hmm. but in the reverse order of Swayze, Cruise, Cage. That's my three favorites. In fact, if we could ever get any of the three, except you know, God rest his soul, Patrick Swayze, either Cage or Cruise on the show it would like pretty oh, much. You could get, yeah, that or you could if you could dig up getting. Swayze, then that would be really, really a miracle that you dig up <laughs> getting Swayze. I love it. I, I didn't know how to phrase it. it. Yeah, I'm digging a hole for myself right now. <laughs> so, do we think? Okay, current Cage. There's not a chance no. in my mind. Sorcerer's Apprentice Cage, maybe. Uh, no, I'm, I'm I think you got to start to reach further back. No, you got to go way back. I do. I think that the Rock era Cage 
if they made this movie in the 90s, it would have been a completely different movie. But I think Rock Eric Cage could have done it. He would have been too young. No, 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 no. Rock Eric Cage, like he, they, they age him significantly. Like a couple years later, when he plays Memphis Reigns and gone in sixty seconds. Is that? <laughs> I can do the voice. Yes. I don't think he would. I don't think it would have been as good of a movie. I oh, don't think it would have. Definitely would not have been as good of a movie. The, <laughs> no. the point is, just could he have done it or could he not? Uh, he could do pretty much anything. He could fly. So I think like fate. Yeah, like Face Off era, Con Air era, Cage. Like I, I would believe his ability to do it. Hmm. There's those sweeping scenes of melancholy where he like frowns and gone in sixty seconds. Like the sweet like camera sweep where he's like frowning. He's like, my brother's in trouble. Like those scenes where I'm like, man, you throw the right music, you give me the exosuit. The yeah. slightly balding, that's just the slightly. But I would want, I would want Con Air era cage hair, like Sorcerer's Apprentice cage hair. Couldn't do it. <laughs> it would be too absurd. <laughs> it would be absurd. My your guys's cage is Keanu Reeves. That's how I feel about Keanu. Oh, yeah. huge Keanu. Yeah, that's how I the feel. The invasion will fail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It would have been a little, a little monotone. But Keanu Hardball would have done a great job with this. So, oh, you know. Hardball era. Yeah. I got a question for you guys. Yeah. What do you think, uh, how do you think the movies would have done if you replaced Tom Cruise with Matt Damon and switched with Elysium and um, Edge of Tomorrow? What so is- you take Tom Cruise, put him in Elysium, and would that have made that movie not as much of a flop and vice versa? No, Elysium no. would have flopped exactly the same, and this movie probably would have done slightly better. Really? Yeah, definitely, because everybody loves Matt Damon. Yeah, I actually uh, no. I take that back because no. I, I take that back because I think that if you were to spend that much money and put it behind Matt Damon, if you were to spend 175 million dollars on Matt Damon. The precedent for Matt Damon to be the front runner on a near 200 million dollar action movie does not exist. Where it does for Tom Cruise. So for Cruise, when you spend 175 and you make 360, it's kind of like well. We didn't come out that far on top, but like he at least kind of, to some degree, did what he expected. If if, if Matt Damon had done it, let's say they had made a little less than that, like three hundred, it would have been like this was a complete flop. What are you thinking, putting this bunch of money behind Matt Damon? I agree with that. I don't think Matt Damon could have done. It. I love Matt Damon. I think he's good at doing comedy too and action, but I don't think that he could have pulled off this movie even close to as good as Tom Cruise did. I think um, the question would have been if we switched it with Fury if it was Brad Pitt, because Brad Pitt, I think, would have crushed in this role. Yeah, I mean, that's probably why he was the original frontrunner for the part, is I would have definitely watched it as well. Here's my one thing with Brad Pitt that I will say I don't think he could have done as good a job. I think the movie would have been very good. It would have just been a little different. The movie star comedy factor. I don't mm-hmm. think that Brad Pitt is, is as good at movie star comedy. I think he's, he's just snatched, as... right? I think he's very. I think he's a very good actor. I think he's... he's totally like uh, competent in terms of pulling off a, a script like this but in terms of the scenes where it's supposed to be like very funny like laugh out loud funny I just don't think I could get behind it as much I'm gonna interject yeah quick. please Coen Brothers movie uh, yeah. what was that George Burn after reading yeah. yeah he was hilarious in that it's very funny yeah. and in Snatch he's phenomenal he's also very funny in that movie as well he can do the comedy and I might Brad just be too Pitt. in on Cruise I just, I just think that, that scene where he's doing the Jerry Maguire thing is like Almost funnier because it's Tom Cruise. And he's on an offset. Offset, he was doing the Tropic Thunder dance for them, trying to make everybody laugh when yeah. they're miserable. So I, I, agree. I think he was the best person for part. I will say that. I, there, I just don't think you could really find somebody better. All right, so the last thing we do on the show is we figure out which category is it in. Is it in totally ridiculous, totally legitimate, or legitimately ridiculous? And those three categories mean are you off a cliff with absurdity where you just can't buy the movie at all? You would never put it on a critically acclaimed list? Are you completely legit, like, Veering in the in the direction of awards season, where you could be like a fringe Oscar contender for some some elements of the movie, like The Fugitive or something, or are you the perfect combo, where you perfectly combine drama and camp, and there's at least one performance in the movie that you could say if that performance had been in a sort of better movie, it would have been awards worthy. Very clearly, The Rock. 
Yeah. The Rock, yes. I think it's very clearly, legitimately ridiculous. Right in the middle. Right in the middle for yeah. you? For me, I think it really is. I, I think that it wasn't so crazy that I couldn't believe anything, but did I feel like it was completely legitimate? No, because there are some plot holes. I think it was legitimately ridiculous. I kind of bounce back between legitimately ri- ridiculous and totally ridiculous, but what you said there about the clip critically acclaim, yeah. uh, I had to put it in the middle category as well. See, for me, it's really hard because some of the movies that we would put in the middle category are some of my favorites. I mean, that's the, it's the front-runner category for this whole show, is movies that fit into this middle category. The problem with this movie, to me, is that 80% of the movie is in totally legitimate, like actual classic, like, like dramatic classic mode. But the last 20 minutes is worse than... It's worse than anything would fit in the middle category. The, the last 20 minutes, in terms of its absurdity, the fact that it's just... I'm just not invested at all in that whole action sequence. I don't even know what to do. It feels like some sort of Frankenstein thing where it's just like stapled two genres together. Where are you right now when you staple things? In the middle. Look I'm what gonna, he did I, there. But you know what, what I'm going to do? What kind of stapler is this, I am going to go on a limb here. and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go on a limb and I'm going to say that this was totally legitimate. And the reason is because really? I think 80% of it and enough of it where I'm just like, I hate the last 20 minutes of Dark Knight, but Dark Knight's 100% legitimate. And I would never drop Dark Knight past that just because I hate the whole like Two Face ending and the unnecessary qualities of the last twenty minutes. Right. To me, such a different show. Oh my gosh, right? we gotta um, debate that. <laughs> I love this movie to death. The fact that I can watch this movie six times and I'm all in on a dramatic level and a comedic level every time. I don't feel like I'm watching something stupid. This movie is totally legitimate. Really, it's over eighty percent. I just can't. Me. I can't. I can't do it. That's I how I feel. Yeah, okay. Well, well, fair enough. That about wraps it up for us on an extra long second edition of Action Movie Anatomy. <laughs> Thank you so much for sticking with us, guys. My name is Ben Bateman. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and occasionally Periscope if Roxy is sharing my feed at Ben Bateman Media. Andrew, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Andrew Guy on Twitter. You guys can find me everywhere at Roxy Stryer. Remember, guys, subscribe or you will die. <laughs> And lastly, check out Popcorn Talk. You know, get on board with us. Great shows all week. We'll see you guys next week with an extra special show. Thanks Thanks again for coming, Roxy. Thanks. Take care, guys. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only, not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.